Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. We're praying together, though. Thanks for joining us for October. This month, we uh, today, actually, in morning prayer, we remember uh, Therese of Lezou, uh, and we remember in a few days Francis of Assisi on the 4th. We remember Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, Lots of great folks. Uh, Oscar Schindler. Um, we remember Teresa of Avila, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, John Woolman on his birthday uh, back in the 1700s. He was one of the great uh, leaders of the, the Friends and the Quakers. Clarence Jordan, we remember on the 29th. And there's a few dates that we remember this month as far as history, uh, the beginning of the war and bombing in Afghanistan um, started uh, during October. So we remember that the Cuban Missile Crisis, the courageous women in black in Serbia that now there's expressions of that around the world. Um, and uh, uh, we remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, we we uh, got a lot going on this month. So and and there's there's a few other things that we've got going at Red Letter Christian specifically too. We we're doing you know book club each month. If you missed it, we just had Alexia Salvatierra on uh, talking about her book and her new book, Buried Seeds, which comes out actually in a, a week or so. So uh, that was a great conversation. If you missed it, you can see the recording with Alexia this month. Lisa Sharon Harper's uh, facilitating the discussion for our book club. It's going to be Amy Kenny's book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request. So uh, grab a copy of that, join Lisa, and I'll be on there too, but she's going to lead the discussion with Amy. Um, our brother Rich Mullins, great singer and songwriter, passed away uh, 25 years ago, and his birthday's this month. So been emailing with his brother and some of his friends. I think we're going to do a little Red Letter Christian uh, celebration of some of his music and life. So we don't have the exact time for that, but just know that's happening. And we remember Brother Rich this month as it would be his birthday. So a lot going leave on. the thing in, Shane? Yeah, <laughs> I will leave the singing up to Rich or you, Jonathan. If you're on, you can bust this little Rich. Let's play out. a recording of Brother Rich. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, there's that last concert they captured videoed from, uh, I think, Lufkin, Texas or something. We might watch that. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be a good month, y'all. And, um, Jonathan, you 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 were at the uh, Congress and uh, testified along with a bunch of uh, clergy all around the country and different people impacted by poverty, poor people's campaign. You want to give us a little little glimpse of that it was powerful well we had a good morning on capitol hill last week yes the um uh various uh sisters and brothers in the uh, family of faith uh christian muslim jewish um it was an interfaith coalition we were on the hill and uh, some powerful testimonies uh not only about how our faith traditions uh, call us to uh, uh, care for poor folks, uh, but also just some some powerful testimony about 
how poor folks are doing. It's uh, it's really striking uh, two things at the same time. One, you know, with inflation and um, the, you know various uh, pressures people are facing, there's there's really you know rising costs of food, rising costs of housing, transportation, all these things. Uh, it's 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 harder now for many folks living on the edge than it's ever been. And at the same time, we just got data from the U.S. Census Bureau that says um, uh, the actions that the government took in the uh, spring of 2020 uh, when they passed the uh, um, American Rescue Plan uh, cut poverty uh, by 20%. Just, Mm. you know, one bill was able to cut it by 20%. And yet those things were not extended. So, you know, some 30 some million people came out of poverty, went right back into it. And so uh, we're we're really pushing for uh, folks in Congress to take action, especially ahead of these midterms, so that poor and low income folks know that when they go to vote, who's on their side. And uh, yeah, so it's a good day to be there. I'm grateful for that witness. That's great. Angel, anything either y'all got going on this month that everybody should know about and <laughs> join in on? Yeah, um, it's going to be a busy month, and it's an exciting month. I'm I'm doing a lot uh, around my book, you know, with my work in Christian nationalism and um, the new book, you know, having updates from COVID, from George Floyd's murder, and the rising uh, racial consciousness in the church and the backlash to that, uh, and then the insurrection. Um, the thing that's exciting for me is that a lot of churches, local churches, really want to have these conversations. So I'm going to be doing some things here in Minneapolis at churches. Um, I'm going to do a radio show next week, and then I'll be in Arkansas, uh, right near the campus of the University of Arkansas, uh, the second to last weekend in October. Uh, so I'm I love doing those events. I think the local church you know, we've underutilized the local church as a place for um, social change, you know, in, in the white community, particularly <laughs> not in the black church, but in, in the white church, we certainly have underutilized it. So I'm always excited to see people who really want to dig in and have these conversations and work together for justice and truth. So good. So we're going to hear more about all that in just a minute, y'all. And um, Angel is also out in Minneapolis where our friends Doug Padgett and Shelly and their crew are and um, all of us have collaborated with uh, the Vote Common Good and and they're they're doing tours right now around Christian nationalism so you can join in. Like they were just in Arkansas. Person. You might yeah, run into some of the same people down there. Totally. They're going to be in Pennsylvania too. I'm going to be jumping on that. We're trying to do a thing at Eastern, John. We might get you up here. Uh, to, we'll see if we can do that. So, uh, but, uh, Praise uh, the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> well, Let's do prayer, y'all, and then we'll talk. We'll have a wonderful conversation with uh, Angela in just a minute. And so we're going to do uh, our midday prayers, and you can you can carry these with you. This these are beautiful prayers, uh, really old uh, prayers, and uh, we'll go. Get, you get us going, Jonathan. Let us pray. Draw us into your love, Christ Jesus, and deliver us from fear. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. 
O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Let's join together with the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You want to take that next section, Angela? Sure. Make us worthy, Lord, to serve our brothers and sisters throughout the world who live and die in poverty and pain. Give them today through our hands their daily bread and through our understanding love. Give peace and joy. Amen. The reading of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the hungry, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness and justice, for great is their reward. Come Holy Spirit, we pray that your fruit would be in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Dear Jesus, help us to spread your fragrance everywhere we go. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O oh, good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Suffer me not to be separated from you. From the malicious enemy, defend me. In the hour of my death, call me. And bid me come to you that with your saints I may praise you forever and ever. Amen. Through our lives and by our prayers, may your kingdom come. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We close the uh, midday prayers with passing the peace, that old uh, tradition in the church. And uh, well, that's right, here's a little, <laughs> little connection. <laughs> but... Uh, Great time for conversation, huh? When passing yeah. peace. And it's uh, just a delight to have you with us, Angela. Angela is our guest today. Uh, as Shane said, our theme is formation. And um, you've been doing so much good work, uh, both as a pastor in the local <laughs> congregation and as a writer who is trying to pay attention to the way not only your flock, but so many in our shared culture uh, have been misformed by this distorted Christian nationalism. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you just kind of what you've been learning 
because I know you just did a new edition of Red State Christians and wrote a new uh, kind of uh, introduction to it. Um, so, yeah, what what do you see happening around us in terms of formation, and what are you learning the challenges are for those of us who want to follow the way of Jesus in this time and place? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, my real awareness and study of Christian nationalism began you know, I think I always had a sense for it. For me, as, as a Lutheran and as a student of theology, I understand Christian nationalism as a version of theology of glory, which tells us that Christianity is naturally wrapped up in, in wealth and fame and power and all the things of empire that Jesus really stood against. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my particular understanding of American Christian nationalism began in 2018 at the beginning of my travels. I spent that year traveling across the country doing research in red states and counties and with conservative Christian leaders for the first edition of my book, Red State Christians. Um, And then since then, you know, I've just continued to understand it from the perspective of of a clergy person. I really understand Christian nationalism in a large sense as a failure of, of American pastors in a lot of ways, you know, and it's not entirely that burden to to carry, but it is, you know, I really see a lot of culpability on the part of of parish pastors. Um, because even for pastors who have not been vocally, you know, proclaiming the tenets of Christian nationalism and pushing that in our churches, um, we've really ceded the ground to the Christian nationalists by being, you know, in the case of a lot of mainline pastors, um, and you know, I, I get all these pressures, you know, you're you're as pastors, you know, we're living on the margins often economically and paying off seminary loans and all those things. But, um, you know, we've been a little bit timid when it comes to really calling a thing what it is. Um, and so that's some of the work I've been doing is encouraging my peers to to speak boldly and confidently against this phenomenon to and also to speak, you know, in context, like it's one thing to say this is happening at a national level. But it's another thing to say right here in our local communities, in a lot of rural communities where, you know, mainline pastors still really hold a lot of influence um, to point out where it's happening for us locally as well. That's really good. For those uh, who may not have, you know, been introduced to this concept, uh, Christian nationalism is a very old idea in this country. Uh, Our friends, uh, Phil Gorski at Yale and... um, um, Sam Perry uh, just did a book that really traces that history. It's called Flagging the Cross. Um, so it's an old idea. It's come up. It's you know, been more prominent sometimes than others. But it's this idea that, you know, that America is a Christian nation and that uh, being true to a particular version of Christianity is, is uh, essential to the um, well-being of the country. Uh, in addition to being an idea, though, it's also a very well-organized and highly funded movement. And that movement has been really pumping a lot of disinformation, in particular into rural communities, communities like those you visited and like where you serve. And so I'm particularly um, interested in hearing, uh, when, when you're talking about like getting specific in the local, what are you saying in your parish? Or uh, you know, what are you encouraging other rural pastors to say about the particular ways this works on people's lives in, in their communities. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I heard, you know, a big thing is building up trust, building up relationships so that people in your congregation will know like when to come to you and tell you about what they're seeing and what they're mm-hmm. noticing. Um, and so one of my members, uh, are you guys getting a delay here? Are you okay? You're coming through for me. Okay. Yeah. Um, so one of my members is on the local township board uh, out in rural Minnesota, and he was sharing with me that uh, they've had several visits from like a national militia group uh, that is seeking to infiltrate through townships um, really to like overthrow the Constitution and to rewrite the Constitution in terms of what they view as a, a Christian nationalist state. Um, so that's one, one place where I see it. I also see, you know, some of these same members who are on local boards, um, they've really reported an increase in racist language, um, hearing the N word in meetings like this is in Minnesota, you know, this is not in the former Confederacy, um, and, you know, helping your congregation members to to know that it's important for them to speak out and to connect the dots between um, this embrace uh, of power and of exclusion on behalf of a movement that's founded on Jesus. It's really important also to share, you know, this was never who Jesus was. I particularly preach that, you know, Jesus was crucified by empire. Um, Our, you know, my European ancestors probably, they retold the story of the of the crucifixion as being perpetrated by Jewish people and leading, of course, to generations of anti-Semitism in Europe. But truthfully, if you go back and read the Gospels, it was the Roman Empire that crucified Jesus, and they saw him as a political enemy, a political threat. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really important to get the story of Jesus straight and get who Jesus was straight, you know, countering this idea that Jesus was a white guy <laughs> and yeah. was a white European. Um, I think that's, it's been really, you know, one of my major transitions, I think from when the book first came out to, to when I speak now and when I talk with pastors now, I used to think it was really important to say, you know, hey, guess what? Jesus was not an American. <laughs> and people, you know, people don't always realize how, how much we may have assumed that and they'll kind of giggle and like, oh yeah, shoot, you know? Um, but now I've, I've found it even more important to, to proclaim that truth that, that Jesus is not white, that Jesus was a brown Middle Eastern Jew in a particular context. Um, and to sort of, by reclaiming that particular context, we decenter ourselves from the story of the gospel um, as mm. white Americans. And so mm. that's been particularly important. You know, I serve a denomination that is the whitest denomination in America. So we, we have a lot of work to do in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting as you talk about the uh, uh, Christian nationalism that, you know, I was thinking of the queen dying um, and the the different ways that Christians in different cultures, different countries try to navigate power and our relationship to state power. And I mean, it's real weird in Europe. You know, there's places where the the, the fusion of church and state gets uh, and, and even in the Lutheran church, you know, in the Reformation, part of what happened was there was a critique of the papacy and the the Vatican and the Pope and indulgences, all that stuff. But it also transferred a lot of power to the state as this sort of hand of God, you know, and of course, Martin Luther on a few things um, 
it almost is like the state can do no wrong, you know, and so we give this sort of blank check to state power. So um, I wonder how you, you know, as you see folks navigating this, what are some ways that we can really start to concretely identify changing the narrative so we, we're not we don't have that distorted narrative of this kind of access to state power and america is the messianic force in the world like i think there's a lot of different levels but give us a few handholds of what people might do yeah one of the most difficult and probably important sundays of my career was the sunday after january 6th um and i thought it was as we watched so many Christian symbols being used um, as part of that violent attack um, and people using biblical imagery and Christian flags to support a violent overthrow of government. Um, I felt like it was really important for me to communicate to my congregation um, why that version of Christianity is not biblical and is not what, what what we believe as, as Lutherans. Um, and so what I always advise people to do, and this comes from my background as a journalist as well, I think is I want people to find themselves in the story. Um, and so one thing that I shared with them that Sunday was about my experience, um, in late 2019, I was on CNN and super briefly, (laughs) but Breitbart used that segment for an article and sort of featured me as like this liberal pastor. Um, and, you know, I received a lot of like threats. I received a lot of violent messages. Um, and I've experienced that in the past. I was sharing with you guys, I used to cover hockey. So it's not like I'm a softie when it comes to that sort of thing, but I really like full on the, the breath. And I think as, as a woman pastor, you get it sort of directed to you in a really um, intense and gendered way as well. This violence, sexual violence um, as a mother, you know, I got it. Um, I had to really find ways to keep my children more private than I had in the past. And so I wanted to share that with my congregation in light of, you know, because when I drove, it's so interesting. I drive from my home in Southwest Minneapolis, about an hour west um, to my congregation in Roll McClug County. And so I drive from Ilhan Omar's congressional district to a county where in 2020, Donald Trump won two thirds of the vote. So I'm really seeing, you know, this transition. And as you drive further west on this same road, you start to see more and more Trump signs. Um, and that Sunday, when I, that Sunday after January 6th, seeing how many Trump signs were still out there in this little rural town, I wanted to help my congregation understand what those signs could represent for somebody who's been on the receiving end of white nationalist Christian violence. Mm. Um, And it wasn't just anonymous people. I wanted them to know like their pastor, who they know, who they trust, who I've baptized their babies. We've shared confirmation together. We've I've buried, you know, their loved ones um, that that when I saw those signs, what it represented for me was a really tangible sense of fear, a really tangible sense of threat towards me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I took that time to share that at the top of the service um, and we, we ended up having 
um, a couple of families who I knew pretty well leave the congregation partially over that. Um, but it also opened up some really important conversations and continuing to help people understand specifically locally in their circles, how these national trends are impacting people. And, you know, it might feel cool or brash to act like, you know, oh yeah, rah, rah, you know, we're going to be politically incorrect and say these things, but this is the impact that those violent words and images said in the sense of your religion have on real people. Yeah. Oh, I I think that's insightful in terms of how uh, people don't, see the folks who their language is, you know, directing violence toward as um, people like them. Uh, and, and, you know, you talked about fear, but a lot of that is shaped by the fear that's been cultivated in these communities. You know, you're losing your country, you know, your country's going to hell, your kids are in danger, you know, they're, they're being groomed, blah, blah, you know, this, these are the stories that are being told. And so, I, yeah, I wonder, um, uh, you spent a lot of time when you were reporting red state Christians, listening to people uh, who've heard these narratives. I wonder if you could just speak to, you know, what are the fears that people are acting out of when they embrace or go along with uh, Christian nationalism? Yeah, and I think this is what I really saw in my reporting, too, as sort of a a failure of the local church, a failure of clergy to help people understand their identity positively as followers of Jesus and what that looks like. And so people became in search for an identity. And I really saw increasingly that, you know, for a long time, the GOP um, criticized Democrats over being invested in identity politics. But I think we started to see that shift with Donald Trump where um, right-wing politics became a lot more about identity. And so for people in search of an identity, that identity became wrapped up in not only being a Republican, but being a supporter of Donald Trump. And that identity became more powerful than for a lot of people than their, than their Christian identity. Um, yeah. they, the two may have become wrapped up together, but the driving force of that identity was conservatism, uh, conservatism rather than um, Christian biblical ideals. Mm. Um, so that fear, I think, and I've also become convinced, you know, I, in the last several years, especially being right here in Minneapolis, I, I live uh, five miles away from where George Floyd was killed mm. and watching you know, the shakeout and the racist backlash to some of the racial justice protests that happened after George Floyd. Um, I've become convinced too that a, that a lot of this is grounded in a racist fear for people, um, a fear of what it would mean to lose their whiteness. Um, and I think too, you know, for, for Americans who have been in this country a little bit more recently, like many people in the Midwest who, who came, you know, in the mid 1800s, early 1900s, um, they were the other for a while as Germans, as Irish. um, And there's this sense now that we've become enveloped into a monolithic whiteness. And from that people derive their supremacy. Again, um, this is so far afield from Jesus, Mm. you know? Yeah, I was thinking as we're reading those uh, 
midday prayers, you know, the you say the Beatitudes, you say the fruit of the Spirit. We pray, G- Jesus, we want to leave off your fragrance everywhere we go. And this, this part of what's really so troubling and ironic is that the Christian nationalism really doesn't want much to do with Christ. In fact, that's part of what's so, um, I think, hard for a lot of uh, folks that, uh, you know, it, the deeper you love Jesus, the more you often find the things that Trump represented uh, feeling really <laughs> pretty, pretty far, far contrast from that. And, and yet, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to know how people hold those tensions together, right? That we're, but it, it seems like that fear, the, 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 the concerns I was talking with some folks that, that they, they really think, you know, that um, these are folks I was working with the other day that are um, uh, new friends of mine, but they're, they, they keep going back to like um, that, that, that we're, you know, we're really in an economic crisis. Uh, there's folks that want to take our jobs. There's these things. So there's sort of a fear of scarcity. That's a part of that. So it's not necessarily that they, they were saying overtly racist things, although some people do. They say these people are going to replace us. You know, they're changing. They're changing America. You know, like this is not the America we were supposed to be, and all that. But sometimes it's just this idea that there's not enough, right? Like there's not enough jobs, there's not enough resources. Absolutely, and I think in mainline congregations, mainline denominations. We've been real guilty of that. You know, there's always been this sense of scarcity. Uh, you know, we're losing members. We don't have enough. And um, I recently ran into Diana Butler Bass and she was sharing, you know, the, the immense amount of wealth and property and land that is held by mainline denominations in this country. And we have sold this tale of scarcity and it's just, uh, it's not true. And it's really, really hampered our witness and this, this abundance that, that the New Testament is full of this sense of abundance. It's really been a lie about scarcity that we've mm-hmm. told. And it's been a really powerful lie, a lie that, you know, I was raised with, I was brought up with um, feeling like, you know, I was poor to a certain extent when we really weren't, but mm-hmm. this sense of just, you've got to be so careful with money. You've got to be, and it was, you know, out of good intentions, but um, it's, that's been a pernicious lie. Hey, as we're we're continuing the discussion too, if you're watching on one of the on YouTube or Facebook or whatever forum you're watching on, put you can put a question or comment in there. Katie uh, at Red Letter Christians is looking at those, um, and um, one of the questions that's come up, Angela, is is not only are people navigating this within their own church congregations, um, but people are navigating this in their own families, right? Uh, they may not people be people that showed up on January 6th, but they kind of hear, you know, those subtle uh, 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 comments that that uh, about America being a Christian nation and those sorts of things. How, how do you, you know, what advice have you seen about folks having hard conversations that, you know, don't create permanent wounds in their family, but also don't just try to gloss over things and let's all just get along and not talk about like this really insidious uh, uh, poison to our faith, you know? So have you, you seen folks now? I mean, I guess we're all navigating that in our, our families, but uh, have you seen people do that well, Angela? Yeah, I actually write about this in the new conclusion of Red State Christians because this is a been an been a big part of my 
personal experience over the last three years. Um, my, my husband's family uh, have been, you know, pretty devoted Trump supporters and that this kind of uh, rhetoric has been really formational in their lives. And we went through a really difficult family tragedy together over the last year with um, my, my husband's oldest brother contracting COVID in June of, uh, of 2021 and uh, being hospitalized and being on an ECMO machine for about three months and then ultimately dying of COVID and leaving behind two young nieces, a stepson, his wife. Um, and just, I think, um, in, during that time, you know, we'd had some difficult discussions because of my public work um, about Christian nationalism and because of my work around George Floyd's death. And one of the things I watched was, you know, how some of these stories about COVID within the, a, a Christian nationalist framework of like, you know, this is a disease from China. There was this focus on China as the other enemy. Um, there was this mistrust of the medical establishment, this mistrust of vaccines, this, you know, a lot of Christian nationalist leaders um, on the right wing made a lot of money during COVID, you know, selling alternative cures. And I saw how all this national messaging, you know, converged on my family and really added to and exacerbated our suffering. Um, but the beautiful part, you know, of this story in the midst of this, this turmoil and this intense suffering and grief um, was that also, you know, my husband's family, because of the relationships and trust that we've built over all this time together, um, they really invited me in as a pastor, you know, at my husband's brother's bedside during the funeral service. I was the one to conduct the funeral service, even though their home church has been a church that doesn't have women pastors and that doesn't embrace that. Um, so it was just this incredible journey of grief, of death, of, you know, evil in some of this messaging that added to our suffering and also um, of grace, you know, that God that God still spoke <clears throat> and that, you know, we were able to um, come together as a family. And so I, I share that story um, just to, to encourage people to, to hang in there, to pray through some of this stuff, um, to find ways to both be compassionate and be honest. And I also often share um, the story of Jesus as he sends out the 70 and he tells people, you know, you're going to be going into different homes and you don't carry anything with you. You're going to be welcomed. But that if you're not welcomed, that you also take time to shake the dust from your feet. And so I think sometimes, you know, a lot of times people end up pouring all of their energy, all of their goodness and all of their conversation into people that just aren't ready to hear it at that time. Um, and so I think you have to really be discerning about where you spend your energy, um, where you spend your time not in arguments on social media, yeah. but in, you know, as much constructive community building as you can to build up that trust, to have these conversations and to bring about. I, th I, think, oh, there's, I think there's a whole sermon there. Shake the dust off. Ah, glory. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And for your witness. I, I mean, it's, it's powerful. And it, it reminds me of uh, Clarence and Florence Jordan, who we remember in common prayer this month, because, you know, in their day in Southwest Georgia, uh, the, the Christian nationalism of the day was the Ku Klux Klan and the, you know, 
Baptist churches that more or less went along with it, whether they invited them in or not. And um, I, I think, you know, their witnesses like yours, it's this insistence that you, you can take people as people and you can develop relationships with them. You know, you can be their neighbor. You can farm alongside them, uh, but you can do that with integrity. And it, um, it reminds me of uh, Florence Jordan was at the Rehoboth Baptist Church uh, the Sunday when they called a business meeting and said that they were going to have to uh, hold a vote in the church because uh, Florence and Clarence had uh, broken the rules of the church. They had brought a Negro to worship. Uh, as it happened, the person was actually from South India, was a dark-skinned man, but would not have been considered a Negro you know, at that time, nevertheless. The people didn't recognize that. Um, and so they called the vote. And Florence said nobody wanted to vote him out because they had been members there for over a decade, and he preached there fairly often. He wasn't even in town that day, and it, it was kind of awkward. So it was just silent. So she had to stand up and say, I second the nomination because uh, uh, if, you know, if, if, if fellowshipping with a Christian sister or brother of any race uh, is against the rules of this church, then I've broken those rules. And so she led the vote in voting them out of the church. That's some integrity. That's kind of like what you're doing right there. You got to you got to be there. You got to be with the people. And when the time comes, you got to tell the truth. Yeah, I bet she shook that dust off too. <laughs> That's a good story. My, my, my. Well, I'm so grateful for uh, all that you're doing. And when you were talking earlier, it reminded me uh, of uh, the the work that. Uh, Robert Jones has done, a sociologist, yeah. who says that, you know, uh, the ramping up of this white Christian nationalism that we've been talking about really began um, in the second term of Barack Obama's presidency when demographically white Christians became a minority in this country for the first time. And when you were talking earlier about an identity crisis, I think that's the root of the identity crisis. A lot of us were going along thinking that our whiteness and our Christianity were the same thing until we became a minority. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, uh, people had to say, wait a second. And um, it is a moment when I think pastors and, you know, all folks in the church uh, really are called upon to ask what story tells us who we are? Mm. What story yeah. is it that tells us who we are? And how do we live that out? And um, to have you there on the front lines, working alongside folks in rural Minnesota, gives me great, great joy because I, I know that's a hard thing happening all over the place. But there are people like you who are doing that work. And it's a great sorting. It's a great sorting that's happening. But uh, I think clarifying the source of our identity is what you're talking about. Yeah. Amen. Hey, before we go, I wanted you to say just a little bit more about this. There, there's a part of this that is about sort of uh, aggression and, and uh, you know, people name it in different ways, you know, toxic masculinity. I know our, our friend Kristen Dumay, um, who wrote Jesus and John Wayne and is a wonderful pickleball player, by the way, isn't she, Jonathan? Um, but she she says, you know, the problem is not that um, people most people thought Trump was the savior. Uh, but they just wanted their savior to look more like Trump um, than, <laughs> than the suffering Jesus. Um, and, and um, but, you know, there's a lot of studies that are coming out. And I think in some of the additional work you've done on red state Christians, um, uh, 
about, you know, lonely, angry, sometimes fearful men in particular. I mean, you think of mass shooters, we think of the 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 kind of aggression on January 6th. I mean, there are prominent charismatic women that carry this Christian nationalist theology, but there is something sort of distinctly uh, about, I mean, I, I was seeing a study recently about the, the danger of lonely, angry men and, you know, uh, as an indicator of violence and uh, not just in our culture, but in others as well. But um, I don't know if you want to say, you know, anything more about that or any any kind of nuances that you've seen as you study the connection between that? Because that, that seems like part of the formation crisis, too, is, you know, what, what does it really look like to be a healthy person? Uh, but for those of us, you know, that for some of us, I think it's figuring out how to how to be a healthy man in this culture and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm the mom of two boys. I'm married to a man. Uh, I come out of sports writing, used to cover (laughs) hockey. Uh, So I've been, you know, been around a lot of men. Uh, I have a brother. Um, I love men, love boys. Um, But I do think we, you know, as the church broadly nationally and prominent um, pastors, you know, thinking of when I was growing up in the nineties, the kind of messages that we were giving men about what it meant to be a Christian man, mm-hmm. thinking about uh, Mark Driscoll, thinking about, um, you know, Christian does masterful job of laying out the history of this. Um, not, not to name any names or anything, but you go right ahead. You go right ahead. Yeah. yeah you know, and there's been a lot of profit made part of it's a, a reaction um, against, you know, what people perceived as the yeah softening of the church. Um, but also, uh, I wanted to talk to you about how, um, you know, how we understand how we talk about Jesus for, for young men and how we give prominent examples of what it means to be a gentle man. You know, we talk about, we see that in the gifts of the spirit of gentleness and giving boys permission and security in their masculinity that they don't need to have this aggression, this anger, that it's okay to feel feelings, to express feelings. Um, I think there's a lot of work being done on that. I do see, you know, some of this is, we could talk for a long time about, you know, the crisis in public education and the defunding of public education and what that's looked like for kids in public school, particularly kids living in poverty, whether they're white or non-white. We see, you know, some of that, being played out, we see violent pornography. Um, And so I think the task, you know, I really call upon moms, moms of boys, you know, what is our role in teaching our boys how to relate to, to women, to the church? Um, How do we talk about Jesus as a crucified savior? You know, a lot of our churches, a lot of evangelical churches got rid of the crosses in our churches. Um, And what did that say? about the theology that we embrace in this theology of glory when we're no longer centering the cross. Mm. Um, so yeah, this is personal work for me as a mom. Um, and I want to help empower other moms of boys to really embrace this work and to have it central to our parenting. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate that as a parent. 
Thanks, y'all, for joining us. It's been a powerful hour with uh, Angela Denker. Make sure you read her book, Red State Christians, A Journey into White Christian Nationalism and the Wreckage It Leaves Behind. Angela's also writing a lot, Red Letter Christians, doing a lot of speaking, uh, doing the Substack thing. So you can hear from her, I guess, at least twice a week now, right, on your Substack, three times a week. Three times. Um, and uh, we, we love As that it. journalism background. Give yourself a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, it's rush. <laughs> but we, no, love, it's awesome. yeah. we love you, though, and we're so grateful for all you're doing. Um, Jonathan, you going to sing us out, man? We're going to have a little. We didn't get a song in the midday prayer. Let's have a little blessing as we go. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Hallelujah. All right. Good to be with you. See you, everybody. Thanks, Angela. Hey, y'all, this is Shane Claiborne with Red Letter Christians, and I've got a big favor to ask of you. We want to get to know you a little bit more and make sure that you're getting what you need from Red Letter Christians. So I would love it if you would head to tinyurl.com slash rlc dash podcast. It's all in the show notes. And take five minutes to complete a little survey from you so that we can make sure that you get more of what you love. It's just an honor to be building a better world with all of you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.